Joey said, you're a brave and passionate king. You've given us every good thing. You're good when we're happy, good when we're sad, good when we have everything we need, good when we feel like we're lacking, good when we're rich, good when we're poor, when we're in good health and when we're sick. Jesus, help us to let you be king, not just now, but every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, take your seats. Good morning. How's everyone? Good? Good. Let me get set up here. My, uh, sure, I probably know most of you. Um, My name's Corey Bradley, and um, been at Regen for for a minute. Um, I don't know how many years at this point, but my uh, wife, Jessica, and I called Regent home with our two girls, Harlow and Peyton. And um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here this morning, man. I love the opportunity to be with you guys. And um, just want to acknowledge too, like if this is maybe not your first time, maybe you're newer, or maybe, you know, um, maybe you're a little bit like me. Uh, maybe you're a little bit of a skeptic. Maybe uh, church is like, you don't know if church is your thing, or you're not sure what's What's up from down? I'm just, uh, if that's you, if you feel like that, like you're, you're welcome here. Like, I'm glad you're here. You know, this is the place to be, to figure things out, to ask hard questions, to um, maybe really figure out who God really is and um, what church really could be. So anyway, glad you're here. Um, We started a series on uh, generosity. Um, So we're going to continue that today and have a few things I just kind of want to, want to share with you. Um, We do have a, a, quite a long parable, I think, to uh, to read through. So we're going to start off with that. If you want, the text will be in, if you want to turn there uh, today, the text is Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. So I'm going to go ahead and just read this whole thing. So I'll give you a minute to, to turn there. We're going to read this whole thing, and then we're going to kind of unpack it through um, through the rest of our talk today. But this is, again, this is Jesus speaking in uh, in this, this, uh, this parable. It's really known as the parable of the talents. So it's parable of the talents. Um, I am uh, going to read it in the NLT. It doesn't matter what, what uh, version you have. But Matthew 25, 14 through 30, Jesus says this. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. <clears throat> the servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. Verse 18, But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. What's going on here? Verse 19, After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Verse 22, the servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Good news so far, yeah? Verse 24, Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, 
harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I, 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 I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Welcome to church this morning. <laughs> I promise we have good news for you. <laughs> but this parable is an eschatological one. I think I said that right. Um, or, or it's a long word, right? But, or it's, it's one that teaches and reminds us about the return of the master, Jesus. So a couple thoughts just on the, the servants to start. The first two servants, they receive large amounts of money, right? Ten, five bags, or excuse me, five bags, two bags of silver. Um, they see the situation clearly and really for what it is, right? We can tell by their actions. They get the money, they go right to work, right? Because they have this perspective that says this, like, this is not my money. I have an obligation to my master, and because he's given me so much, like, I'm inspired to get to work. Let's go. I'm excited, right? The third servant also receives a lot of money, and we know they receive a lot of money because we can look at a couple different versions of, the, of this text, um, and we see the word talent, right? I mentioned the, the uh, term, the parable of the talents. But um, when we look at the, um, let's say the definition, but the idea of a, the, the, the value of a talent, it was worth 6,000 denarii. And one denarius was equivalent to one, uh, to one day's wages for a common laborer. So this guy was given 6,000 days worth of wages. Okay, that's a little still for me. I mean, personally, that's kind of incomprehensible, right? So I love how one commentator uh, simplifies this. A talent was comparable to a modern million. So somebody hands you five million, two million, this third servant, one million dollars. That's a lot of money. I think we all would say that's a lot of money. So he receives a million. The amount of money, though, like when we really kind of get into this, get into this, the amount of money doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter that it's uh, five or two or ten or a hundred million. Verse fifteen says the master divided it according to their individual abilities. So he wasn't looking for any sort of specific profit, right? He wasn't like, hey. I need a 30% return or you're fired, right? Like that's none of this is happening here. What he was really looking for, and we'll discover this as we kind of go through, um, he was looking that they would steward the money faithfully according to their own ability. So that's kind of the key of what we're, what we're paying attention to here. First two servants get right to work. The third servant, right? Instead of getting right to work, he begins having this internal crisis. Right? It doesn't really paint that picture, but we know that he's having a crisis by how he responds to his master when his master returns. Going on and on about like, okay, listen, man, like here's why I hid the money, okay? Like there's some things going on you don't know about. Um, I just, I had to do this, right? So he tries to explain himself right away. So he's feeling anxious, right? He knows his master's is going to return. We don't know every reason why he did what he did, but we do know that it all stems from this one kind of core or underlying thing, and it's this. He had an inaccurate view of his master, and because he was unsure of his master's character, he was also unsure of his own character or his own identity or really his own position. So we'll come back to this thought, right? This is kind of like the key thought. Hang on to this. I want to tackle something else before we go. It's somewhat related, but Notice the master doesn't really provide any instruction. Imagine someone gives you a million dollars and says, cool, do something good with this. I'll talk to you later. Okay. 
So knowing that, like we might want to cut this guy some slack, right? Like he hands you a million dollars, all this responsibility, like no instruction, right? But when we really kind of get a little bit deeper into this and we examine how the, the first two servants view life and what they do, we can see that like he's really kind of falling short here. So the first two servants, they, they spend their time, their energy, and I would venture to say, right, some of the money um, uh, uh, serving their master. That was the one thing that they were focused on was serving their master, making the most of what he gave them. The third servant is, we don't know what, but he's serving something else. He had some other vision or believed some other story about life that drove him to do what he did. He focused on what he might or might not do, what he may or may not achieve. He was focused on success or maybe failure. I think probably failure. But if you really think about like the main core thing, like I think his problem was that his life was about himself. He was focused on himself, and sometimes that looks like anxiety, sometimes it looks like a bunch of different things. Main problem is that his life is about himself, but he misses this fact that there's one person in this whole situation who has control over his life and his future, everything he, he is or ever could be, and it's his master. His master controls his future, everything about it. I think about myself in this case and think a lot about when I think about society or culture or church, like I think we share the same struggle today, you know, the struggle to find position, identity, to define, to define a vision of the good life, what we would consider maybe the good life for ourselves. And we all maybe have a different definition of what that would be. It's a little different for us though than this guy, because we live in a, a culture that is as individualistic, I think, as they come, right? I haven't traveled the world or anything like that, but uh, the internet's pretty helpful. So I think, like, we're pretty individualistic as a culture. Um, we're born into this system that, that values just this, like, self-made, rugged individualism, hard work, nose to the grindstone, and those are, like, helpful, good things along the way. This belief, I think, I know, uh, has also unfortunately dominated the Western church for far too long, this individualistic culture the value that we put on it. The story of God becomes a story about God and me and my personal salvation. And we've talked a little bit about this before, but instead of a story about God where we get to witness or be a small part of the things he's doing here on earth, the story where we get to have an identity within his kingdom, where we get to have responsibility within his kingdom. It's, a, it's his story after all. E. Randolph Richards says this in his book, and this title's like 500 words long, so just Bear with me. His, the name of his book is Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand the Bible. I don't know if you're an Office fan, but that's a Michael Scott thing if I've ever seen one. But his quote says this, at some point in this generation, take up your cross and follow me, changed into come to Jesus and he'll make your life better. I think sometimes we believe this story about life, that our lives are our own to live as we see fit, however we see fit. Our money is ours to spend, our families are ours to lead however we see fit or whatever we think is best. And maybe that we think Jesus is ready and waiting to help us achieve everything we've ever wanted or set our hearts upon, maybe. I don't know, we're talking about generosity, right? I don't know that we always connect that line of thought or that story, right, this individualistic story with generosity. 
oftentimes, I, I know when I think about generosity, right, it's like the holidays, it's Christmas time, people were ringing bells everywhere. Like, I think about giving things to other people or other causes, and that's definitely generosity, right? It's a good definition of generosity. It's a, uh, generosity is a, it's a, we could argue that it's a spiritual discipline or practice even, right? Those are good things. But I want to challenge this to you just a little bit, that it's not just an act that we do here and there, but rather and deeper an identity that God is seeking to develop within the hearts of each and every one of us. Not just things that we do here and there, but the type of people that we are. I'm not going to lie to you. For most of us, um, it's going to look like your relationship with money. I think for most of us, it will look like our relationship with money. You know, it does for me oftentimes. But when we talk about generosity or talents in this case, we don't just mean money. It can mean our time, our physical God-given talents, the attitude in which we go about living, our work, our perspective on being with other people, and so on and so forth. It could be a hundred different things. But when I think about the thing, if there's a main thing, that the thing that keeps us from being generous people is the story we believe on what life is actually about. We focus on ourselves because we believe we own stuff. Or we believe that, okay, it's actually more like this. We believe we own stuff, but we, we believe that we have this never-ending potential to own better stuff than we already have. Like, this is the recurring thing, right? Like, well, I could do this. I could buy a new house. I could get a new I could, you know, right? And again, stick with me. Those, this isn't, I'm not trying to demonize all this stuff here, okay? That the world we see around us in some way, like, belongs to us. We carry this vision of life into our work or maybe the reasons why we work, right? Like, for, for ourselves, for our families, so that we can have money and own our belongings, so that we can have the kinds of things that our culture, via the American dream, has told us is rightly ours and will fill us with purpose and peace. I promise I'm getting to good news. Hang with me. Andrew Del Banco, professor of American studies at Columbia University. I only give you his title just to show you how smart the guy is, right? I didn't come up with this. But he says this in his book, The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. His quote sounds like this. I will use the word culture to mean the stories and symbols by which we try to hold back the melancholy suspicion that we live in a world without meaning. We must imagine something that transcends our own tiny allotment of days if we are to escape the lurking suspicion that all of our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. I heard that for the first time. I was like, dude, I wish I never heard that. <laughs> it's true. I wonder if the story we've been told or believed has our lives maybe looking a little bit more like fidgeting and less like these first two servants. Work is a place where we do what we do because we say that the rewards belong to us, right? And that's true to a certain extent. To use how we see fit that will allow us to accomplish like this, this vision of life that we've maybe had or, strong word, maybe been indoctrinated into. When we pursue, though, this vision of life and work, what we're really pursuing is a life that doesn't need to acknowledge God. A life where money is our security and our future and ultimately our hope. This is an idea of work turned in on itself. Let's look just quickly. You don't have to turn there. Uh, if you're quick with your Bible, good for you. Um, we're going all the way back to Genesis 128, but we're going to look quickly at what God intended for work to be when he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It says this in Genesis 128, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So, 
if we keep that in mind and then look back at the third servant, like do his actions or does that mentality like have the same ring or feel to it? Like subdue, rule, as he buries what his master gave him in the ground and anxiously awaits for his return. Now, look, these words subdue and rule, like they can feel strong, oppressive even. I, I get that, right? And, and they are to a certain extent. But like, what does that mean? <laughs> Are we supposed to be like some hard-nosed, like Wall Street manager that's just like, <laughs> like bringing the profit and life out of every employee and everything? Like, no, no, it's not rule and subdue. It looks a little bit more like this: like God has given us this wildly free and at times dangerous earth that is still in need of taming. Just like we see God bringing order to chaos in the creation of the world in the Book of Genesis, just like we see Adam bringing order to the garden, just like we see Jesus. And humility, bringing life to things that are dying. This too is how we are to go about stewarding or working during our lifetime on earth. Tim Keller has a definition of work developed from biblical theology that sounds like this. Work is rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. Flourishing of everyone. So, look, I share, this is not a sermon about work, right? <laughs> um, the servants surely are working, um, so there's a little bit of that in there, but I share so much about work because for most of us, like, this is where we spend most of our lives at work. We spend this huge chunk of life working. A place that is, uh, if I'm guessing, right, and I'm, it's not even a huge limb that I'm stepping out on here, but this place that is dedicated to that vision of life, right? We're Americans, most of us, I think. Like, that, that's the vision of life, right? This individualistic, let's go get it, let's build my own empire, let's make it happen, and right? Like, so we spend a lot of our time there. It reinforces this cycle and this vision of life. And when we're focused on ourselves like this, generosity surely happens. It does. It pops up in small pockets. Maybe when we have feelings of guilt or during the holidays or you hear a sermon about generosity and you write a check. But really your heart or your identity remains unchanged. So look, in both this parable and in the Garden of Eden, it's the master who handed the money and even the entire world um, to his people. And then he gave him the charge to rule it, subdue it, build it, create, experiment, fail. But all with the perspective and notion that it wasn't theirs to keep. It wasn't theirs to keep and it wasn't theirs to hold in the current forms, right? To rule and subdue. Like, that's not just holding on to things. Like, you're actively doing something with that. The same is true for us today. And look, we've we focused a lot on money and work. Um, I love the way that one commentary says this. A talent is anything that the Lord gives now and then asks about later, okay? So we're not just talking about money. So anything that the Lord gives now and then asks about later, the Lord may have given you lots of money or the skills to make lots of money. Um, I didn't get that one, but <laughs> he may have given it to you. He may have blessed you with the ability to sit with people in their grief. Maybe you're really good at that. Uh, maybe he blessed you with the ability um, to be a stay-at-home parent. Maybe he blessed you with kids in general or a hundred other things. The challenge is to shift our minds to this new paradigm that first, none of what he's given us is ours. And second, none of what he's given ought to be held onto or buried. Okay, so we're talking about generosity this morning. I remember when Really, when this paradigm shift hit me personally for the first time, um, I got to tell you two things real quick to set up the story so you understand kind of what a stretch it was and just a little bit about me, right? So um, 
first thing is this, like we do tithe in the Bradley household, okay? So we tithe, but then we also give over and above. Um, and I'm not, t- not telling you this to say anything about me, right? How good I am or how good we are. It's just a stretch that I'm about to tell you in the story. So we do tithe, we give over and above as we feel God is leading us to whatever that might look like, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't know this. I'm really good at hiding it, but I am an extreme person. Um, I know, uh, by promise, I am. Um, so I tend to think and live on the extreme ends of the spectrum, right? So when we talk about giving or uh, running or lifting weights or like any, literally any subject, okay, pick a subject. Um, you know, I talk to my wife, Jess, and we talk about being generous or giving. And she's like, hey, we should start here. And I'm like, how about we empty our checking account and sell our house? <laughs> Do you want to be faithful or not? You know, like that's, so... As I tell the story, just keep that in mind, okay? Because what God is uh, working on me and, and calling me or speaking to me with, like, is probably not going to apply to you guys. So, okay, one day, I'm, I, again, we're going back. I remember when this paradigm shift, right, of, like, happened to me, right? So I'm in the gym working out. I like to lift weights. Um, it's a good stress reliever. It gives me the false assumption that I'm just, like, a strong person, um, so I'm lifting weights, have my headphones in at the gym, and I'm rocking, and I'm not rocking, that's a lie. I, I don't rock at the gym. Um, I actually listened to, at that day, I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller on Christian hope and money. So um, super motivating. If you ever need some workout music, just let me know. I can send you some cool podcasts. Um, so I'm standing, I'm standing there working out at the gym, Christian hope and money, and in that moment, I felt like the Father so strongly was like, what do you really believe about me when it comes to money? Like, what do you really believe? Are, are you going to be the man that really believes in what, that I've given you everything and that you are to give it all away? Who are you going to be, right? Because it was, it was a challenging moment for me. And in that, same, in that same kind of conversation I was having with God, I wasn't lifting weights at this point. I was just standing there probably staring in the mirror just... Okay, got it, yeah. I, I felt like he was challenging Jessica and I to give away some money to some friends that were in a specific stage of life that we just, like, we, we knew they would need it. Like, we knew they would need it. They weren't asking, right? There was no fund or anything, but, they, like, they need, and I said, okay, uh, well, we're tithing, and also we're giving over and above, so can you give me, like, another, like, some time to maybe save some money, God? Like, what are we doing here? And so I'm texting Jess, right, and um, couldn't, couldn't figure it out right at that moment in time in the gym. So I said, I'm going to finish my workout. We'll, I'll come back home. We'll talk about it. <clears throat> Literally hung up the phone. And I, maybe, it was, maybe it was a father. Maybe it was me thinking in my extreme personality. Okay, this is where it's coming into play. Um, I said, you know, if we stop contributing to my 401k, like we could probably give him a good chunk of money over the next few months. Couldn't finish my workout at that point in time. Um, Because at that moment, I was thinking what everyone in here over the age of 30 is thinking, dude, don't ever touch your 401k. What what are you doing, right? You guys thought the golden rule was like, treat others how you want to be treated. The golden rule is don't ever touch your 401k. It's in Matthew somewhere Jesus was talking about. Um, But I, I knew right away that that was actually the move that that we we personally right we're supposed to take please don't take from this that you're supposed to drain your 401k or do anything with your retirement or whatever right i'm young i'm in a certain stage of life where i do have more flexibility with that i just have to say these things right like i don't want anybody coming to me and be like hey i did that and it didn't work right like (laughs) so let's just be on the same page there okay so anyway so we did it and i think i can still retire by the way at some point but I realized again, just like these servants, like it had nothing to do with the actual money or the amount. The father had asked me 
to place something back in his hands that I thought for sure was like off limits, belonged to me. Nobody could have a say in what I did with it or how much I put in there or what, like anything, right? So we did and we sent them off and they, they're doing great in life, right? Not because of what we did, but it, it certainly, certainly helped. But I had this one thought from that, that moment and it still sticks with me today as I was writing this sermon. I was like, man, okay. I couldn't help but think how much and how often I, 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 I say or I feel like, God, I trust you with my heart and my soul and my life, everything that I am. But then for some reason, this weird thing with money, like I have this hang up. Like how can I over here categorize all this stuff, which certainly I think we'd all agree is more important than money or any, or your heart and your soul and your mind and your, like all this stuff, right? But then I'm like, don't touch my 401k, okay? Don't do that. Don't like it. And even though we, we know this truth at a head level, right, that we're supposed to be generous, it's like the right thing to do, it's the right way to live, that God will take care of us, like we still struggle to give our lives away. This is a common thing that we all feel. But I wonder if we live this way because our view of the master is skewed, just like the third servant. We often forget, or maybe more realistically out of a busy life, the fact that the Father has been so generous toward us. Not just with money, not just with family or kids or a job, like every, like the air we're breathing, y'all. Remember what we said about the third servant? He had this inaccurate view of his master, and because he was unsure of his, of his master's character, he was unsure of his own character or identity. This is the main driver for us, for so many things in life, not just generosity, right? It's our view or our perspective of God. And not really the things he's given us so much, but who he is, like factual, right? Like who he is, factual. I love the way that Art said that this morning, like about spiritual warfare, it's here, right? Whatever's happening out here, my experience is this or this or that. No, the Father is who he says he is, or he's not. So in this case, we either know God and therefore we have this position, we are positioned accurately in the world because we know of his identity or we spend our lives trying to find that position. Just grinding it out, burying things in the ground, running in the opposite direction, striving. When we have this partial or inaccurate view of God, we, we can't operate under the authority he's given us to go and subdue and rule and build the things within his kingdom that he's calling us to build. This includes generosity. So. When we continually have to seek to find a position in this world, it creates a constant and consistent wondering within us, right? Like when we're seeking for position, a constant, like, what, okay, what, what am I going to do? Where are we going to go? We can call this anxiety. This is anxiety. Finding this constant position, specifically in the case of generosity, though, we're not free to give away our lives because we miss how much the Father has given to us. And not just how much he's given, but that he's still giving to us. If you're uncertain, if we're uncertain that all our needs, will they be met? Like, will they not be met? I'm not 100% sure. Uh, will I be safe? Will I be secure? Like, why would you even consider giving anything away? Why would you not hold on to every little penny and every little dime and every little piece of food if you're unsure of those other things? Jesus has something very specific to say about this way of looking at life. Turn with me, if you, if you want, Matthew 6, 25. And he says this as part of um, his sermon on the Mount uh, earlier on in Matthew. So this is Matthew 6, 25. But this is right after verse 24, okay? Verse 24, Jesus is talking about money. The very next sentence, Jesus talks about anxiety, 
Verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about your clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus is so cool in this, right? Like, and again, back, I mean, I read this, and I get, I, I extremely, right? I'm like, let's sell it all right now. Burn the ships, let's go. But I love what he says here, and not just what he says, but how he breaks this down if you look at the actual structure of this paragraph. He's given us this charge in verse 33 that says we are to go and seek first the kingdom of God. That's, that's an action. Go and seek, right? Kind of like subdue and rule and build. Go and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But before he provides this one sentence on what we're to do, he gives us an entire paragraph on who God is. An entire paragraph about God's identity. An entire paragraph about how God has given and will continue to continually, forever, give and give and give and provide everything that we could ever need. Not everything that we ever want. Everything that we could ever need. God never stops giving to us. Without an accurate view of the Father, we'll spend our lives operating from this baseline of anxiety and fear trying to find this position. We'll spend our lives holding on to things that God has called us to give away. We'll bury the plans that he's handed to us and may never live as the generous people he's calling us to be, even deeper. When we're wrapped up in our own worries, in this own cycle of trying to find position, we easily forget that our master is planning to return. To ask about how we've stewarded the things that he's given us. Not just our money, not just our time, not just our families, not just our career, like the universe itself. If God really is a generous host and everything we're saying here today is true, every experience here is simply on loan and for us to steward, this might be really challenging news. Some people might take this as bad news, actually, like, what? I have to change my, what? It may be challenging because if God truly has given us every single thing, like, that demands a response, doesn't it? Like, if the air we're breathing and the food we eat and the rain that falls to make the food grow that we eat and the cars we drive and the money that we have and the houses that we have and the fact that they're heated and cool, like, every, like the list does not stop. Does that not demand a response? And not just a response or an acknowledging, but like a soul and heart level turning our entire being toward this generous God that has given and will never stop giving. Here's how I think we meet that challenge. With everything else, everything else God has ever done for us and in us, it always starts with him. 
always starts with him. I want to ask just three questions this morning. So we'll do response time just a little bit differently, right? Instead of like having somebody come up and pray through it, like I'll take you through these questions. We'll pray and, and uh, wrap up that way. But the first one is this, and if this is the only question you think about for the rest of the year, um, then think about it every day, right? Think about it every day, process it. And look, if you're a little bit, right, like me, if you tend to kind of lean to the skeptical side of things, like don't even listen to the second and third question, okay? Like just, just this one. What is your view of God? Who is God to you? What kind of father is he? I know those are three questions, but it kind of also is the same thing if you didn't catch that. What is your view of God? Generosity will always be just an action or, or small actions that we take here and there until we understand who the father is and what he's done for us. Remember this. He gave us something first in large sums of it. Grace. Always. As we live with that truth, generosity will turn from actions that we take to an identity that we carry into every area of our lives. Just like the servants in the parable, remember it's the master, nobody else, nothing else. Not a job, not a 401k, not a life plan, not a business strategy, not a degree that has control over your life. The master is the only one. What's your view of the father? Is he someone that has given you everything or do you believe that he's holding out on you? Is he someone you can give your whole self to, or do you feel the need to bury and withhold certain areas of your life when it comes to being with him? First question is that. What is your view of God? And I want to encourage you, like if these, like if one of these sticks with you, stop listening and just focus on that, right? The rest of, if you feel like God is getting your attention with a question, the rest of what I have to say is not important for you. Second one is this. Maybe if you're not a, a skeptic a little bit, if you don't lean in that direction, maybe you're like, you know what, I really am, like, I'm, I'm in. Like, I do believe in Jesus, and this is the direction I, I'm, like, trying to pursue in life. Maybe this is your question. What has God given you specifically? What talent has he placed in your hands, in your life? We've all been blessed with something. Remember, it doesn't have to just be money. And remember, it's not exactly what you achieve with your talent. It's the faithfulness in which you go about stewarding that talent. Each servant was rewarded for his own faithfulness according to his own ability. The only guy that missed the mark was the guy that did nothing. The only guy that missed it was the guy that buried it, did nothing, walked away, waited anxiously for his master to return. What does the father generously place in your hands? Last question. How will you respond? How will you respond? It's all over the New Testament. It's all over the whole Bible. The master is planning to return. He's given things now. And we'll certainly ask about them later on. Will you take this step of faith? Because it certainly is that. And begin to choose to see the generosity of the Father everywhere. In every area of your life. And in everything. If we live with this perspective and this truth, we'll find more often than not, we lean towards giving our lives away rather than holding on to the things that we think will give us that position or that place. Your perspective of God will certainly shape your own identity. And then that will shape what you go and work on, what you go and give away, what you go and build, what you go and rule, what you go and subdue. It will create within you a generous heart, and therefore we become generous people the way our Father has been generous to us. Who is he to you? What has he given you? And how will you respond? I'd like to pray with you for a few minutes and take some time to kind of maybe think through those, um, those specific questions. Take, um, take 60 seconds maybe just to process some of those questions.
questions, which one's for you? into our vision of life doesn't turn everything upside down but seeks to turn them right side up Father would you help us to see the world for what it is yours would you help us to see our money and our time and the way we view relationships the way we view work the way we think about life itself as everything here is on loan. Not a single thing belongs to us. That you have given every single thing. I pray that um, for those of us that maybe have an inaccurate or a skewed or uh, some sort of view of you that man, has just been diminished or that is that, that is maybe feels like there's some kind of film or blocking in front of it from childhood or or church experiences or whatever it may be father i pray that you would break through that today i pray that you would break through that and maybe for the first time we would see your face help us to know that what you've said is ultimately true and accurate and right and reality Help us to filter our experiences through that instead of defining you based on our experiences, God. Help us to be open as you, you gently, gently challenge our view or our vision of what it means to be generous, giving. And I pray, Lord, that... Um, we would continue to respond and say yes to you as you break into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>